I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, when it comes to describing some of life's most profound experiences, like death and grief, words often fail us. But a poem, letter, or piece of prose can speak volumes. And by now I was crying hard and I was kissing my father's face again and again, telling him I loved him again and again. It was the softest face in the world, my father's face. Mm. So quiet like that, I never knew it. I had never touched it before. And later, a writer discovers solace and hope through poetry. With suicide particularly, where there's this shame around it, poetry became really steadying to me. It didn't have to be poems that that reference suicide, but to see poets being able to speak of those experiences that was really steadying and illuminating to me. Grief, the language of loss, and the healing power of the written word. That's coming up on Life Examined. Artists, poets, and writers have long explored the human condition. And within this is the very complicated and universal feeling of grief. And when we struggle to find words, articulate our feelings, it's often a poem, a note, or piece of writing that has the power to illuminate, to heal, and to reframe the unspeakable into beauty and hope. When I last spoke with poet and essayist Ross Gay almost a year ago, he touched on his own experience with grief, which he wrote about in his collection of poems called Inciting Joy. If you caught that conversation, Gay talks about the joys of gardening and pickup basketball. It was just a fun conversation. In fact, I'm proud to say that that podcast won us an award from the L.A. Press Club. What struck me then was the poignancy with which Gay talked about the experience of losing his father. He'd spent six months with his dad before he eventually succumbed to cancer. And as Gay struggled to come to terms with his own experience, writing became the vehicle through which he processed his sorrow and honored the person he loved. So how do we process grief? And can poetry and prose help us navigate through those dark days? I wanted to explore that further, so we reached back out. Roske is a poet, essayist, and professor of English at Indiana University. Roske, welcome back to Life Examined. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you again. You know, uh, we had a chance last time, last year, to talk about something that I found really moving, which is that... You know, in your recent collection, you talk about the death of your father, which was something that I found just very moving and personal. And for those that hadn't heard that interview, I I wonder if you could just take us back to that period of your life and, you know, what was happening with your father and you. It was a a really important time. Yeah, it was just, you know, my father was diagnosed with liver cancer probably probably kind of in January or December, something like that. And, um, and he very quickly um, got sick and, you know, May 10th, he died. But it happened that I was able to, um, I was coaching basketball, kind of working on a PhD, and I could, I was sort of mobile. So I was able to just move in and, you know, take care of my dad for the last, you know, five months or whatever of his life. Hmm. Were you guys particularly close? Was this kind of strained? Was it natural? What was that like for you? You know, we were we were super close, but we also had a really we had a difficult relationship. Mm. We you know we kind of like I think we had a difficult relationship in part because we were we were very close, but we and maybe like each other too. But you know, we butted heads. We you know we had long periods of sort of just. <laughs> just barely talking to each other. Oh. I mean, you know, like in retrospect, it's just so silly and everything. But but we loved we loved each other like crazy. And the, one of the things that I like to say is that you know, I was a difficult child, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, and my dad is was a complicated person. Just in, the older I get, of course, the more I understand some of those complications, not only because I see them in me, but because I just understand that we're complicated. Mm. Um, but even when we could just barely talk, you know, to one another, if I was in his proximity, he would automatically sort of have his head, his hand on my head, like kind of rubbing my hair, you mm. know, he couldn't not do that. So it just feels like, yeah, we could be very strained, but, you know, we love the hell out of each, of each other, too. So then what, you know, what was it like for you? I mean, you're a thoughtful guy. You're a writer. You're a poet. What was it like for you to just be around your father as you knew that maybe these were some of the final months? Hmm. Many things, I think. I think one of the things is that it felt, 
it felt sort of important and obvious in a certain kind of way. Like this is, I'm able to do this. I'm going to do this. Um, I think in some way, I it even as it was going on, I think it did feel reparative. Like I did, I do feel like I understood that that I was I was doing something that was useful to our important to our relationship mm. that had not just been like a sort of easygoing relationship. Um, and at the same time, I think I was in a way like sort of overwhelmed by um, other things too, like overwhelmed by a kind of, um, I don't know, fear or, or, or anticipation of, of grief of mm. not, I don't even know how to articulate it, but I think like I was aware of certain feelings and I'm aware that I was unaware or repressing other feelings, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and among those things, um, were probably, you know, the, the understanding that, oh, every, <laughs> everything's going to change here soon, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting term that, that sometimes, you know, I, I've used, I've done grief counseling called anticipatory grief, totally. right? D does that word kind of resonate with you, even just when I say it? Yeah, to some extent, though I don't know that that was, maybe it was more like, you know, the when you refuse, there was, there was some thing, and I feel like this was an ongoing thing after my father died too, like a sort of refusal to sort of also acknowledge, um, you know, we never talked about the fact that my dad might be dead here, you mm -hmm. know, like that, you know, that was just not, there was a sort of sense of like, well, maybe, <laughs> yeah. and all of that is very deep and complicated, you know, um, the various sort of stories to that story, but I think there was a little bit of a way, and I, I kind of get into this in the, in the essay in the book, where I sort of, not that I would have, I don't know what I would have done had I been like, okay, so you are actually going to die on May 10th. Should, mm. we, should we say explicitly, talk explicitly about our heartbreaks or like what we love more than we can even come close or what you would like to know about me? Mm. That wasn't in... I don't know that that would have happened, but it's sort of, but it wasn't even like sort of on the table to be like, okay, so it is actually like four months to go. So yeah. what are we thinking here? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I think I share that, that feeling or that experience, which is that, you know, when you, you're about to lose someone, you almost cling to this one story or belief that they, they still might live somehow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Even though, you know, it's probably not going to happen that there's this, it almost feels like it's this animal sense in us, this, this, totally. the, this thing that, you know, we just really don't want to, you know, go deep into the darkness, which can also be full of love and beauty, too. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And that's sort of like part of the, the, the story of that essay is that, like, <laughs> my dad was really, he was really on his way. You know, he was really on his way. And me and my brother, like, get out of the, the room where he is one night and we're like, man, he's so weak. Like we got to get him better. And I have this whole fantasy that I'm going to like, you know, because I'm kind of a coach. Like I was, at, I was a coaching at the time and yeah. I'm like, you know, I, I know how to train and I'm like, I'm going to get this guy better, you know, cause I'm just, and it's going to be real slow because he's really weak. And, but like we can, <laughs> we can overcome this thing. And it's this incredibly, incredibly full, um, fantasy um that was not that was not going to come to pass mm. you know? maybe there is some kind of i i mean i say this with some sensitivity uh, sometimes like an arrogance of a, of a somebody who shows up <laughs> as a care as a caretaker like don't worry i got it oh I, totally i can handle it from here you know totally totally yeah and and just a kind of like naiveness a kind of sweet naiveness but also you know like a kind of of, of like yeah we can kind of we can we can get <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So then, I mean, how did it feel when you watched him begin to decline? How, how was that for you? It was many things, you know. It was, um, I had this dream where I was in an airplane, and it's very sort of shaky. This is after he died, and it's very shaky. Um, and it's, you know, the feeling is like, oh, this airplane's going down. And then I see my father in the front seat, look back and he's flying the plane mm. and then I'm suddenly like calm it's like it's okay it's gonna be okay and to some extent like that 
like I said, we had a complicated, rich relationship. But there is an element. There was an element of that with my dad. Like he, you know, I I felt very safe. Um, and when he got so that you know he couldn't open a bottle of water, um, or he couldn't you know walk across the room, that was sort of you know that was sort of devastating, and it was um, that that was and probably and it's terrifying, you know. Mm. Yeah. And heartbreaking and heartbreaking to, you know, how it is to see someone you love just be um, just to see their body sort of losing the capacities um, by which you know them, but also to know that they're also in, in a good deal of pain. That's devastating. So talk about then the experience of, of then losing him kind of fully and officially. And, and then that, I think, is perhaps, you know, when we think about traditionally a a sense of grief settling in. Can you talk about that transition of, of what you experienced and what you felt along the way? You know, the, the, the truth is, I feel like I was doing a lot of work not to feel this sorrow hmm. of my father's dying. And, and also the sorrow, uh, you know, my own sorrow and my, my mother's sorrow. Um, I think I was trying very hard to avoid, yeah, feeling it. And, and so there were ways that I sort of, I could kind of intellectualize it, I think, and I could kind of talk about the fact of his no longer being here with us. But I was really, I was really terrified to sort of, I think, you know, it's a thing that I sort of think about in, in my life generally, but I would, but I learned it, I think, with my father that that witnessing my own sorrow was terrifying, and being close to my mother's sorrow was also terrifying. Mm. You know, and that feels that feels actually as important in a way um, to my experience of it in terms of a kind of revelation, like, oh, if you can't be close to your sorrow, then you're going to miss your life. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that revelation? That seems, that seems really important to me. Well, I mean, I can say like plainly, and I write about this in the book, like I remember being in a mindfulness meditation class at Thomas hmm. Jefferson uh, Hospital, and I was like trying to, I was having a hard time. And I, that, that I would not have sort of um, connected explicitly to my father's death. Um, and, it, and it was many things, but that was among them. And I remember watching this interaction between the teacher and one of the students in the class. There were about 30 students in the class. And, and we were doing this very simple meditation technique called a body scan. Yeah. And we did it together. And the teacher said in a very sort of nice teacherly way, how did it feel? And most people were like, oh, it felt good. And this one woman said, I didn't like it. And she said, well, wh why didn't you like it? And she said, eh, I'm not sure. And then the, the teacher, again, being a good teacher, was like, do you mind if we kind of stay with this for a second? And this woman said, yeah, let's do it. And they kind of like hung around with it for a little bit. And then she said, oh, I feel sad. It makes me feel sad. Hmm. And, you know, she started crying a little bit. And they're kind of like doing that. And like, and I noticed myself unable to look at them. And it felt like brutal. It felt like a brutality that that we would be all like sort of required to witness this, this woman being a little bit sad. Mm -hmm. And I also recognized that the feeling in my body as I was watching them, or no, the feeling in my, in my body as I was not watching them was precisely the feeling in my body when I would go to visit my mother um, after my dad had died. And it was a, a feel like I wasn't able to take a deep breath, put it like that, you mm -hmm. know. Like my, it was sort of a crushing feeling that I endured, you know, because of course I was going to go hang out with my mom, but it also was like, I, how do I get out of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I know you've, you've written and talked about this too, but there's a certain and, and aspect, and I don't know if it, if it's just wrapped up in the idea of masculinity, mm -hmm. but that that there is a sense that we should avoid or not allow ourselves to be overtaken by something like sorrow or pain yeah. or grief, right? Yeah, I think so. And 
Um, and I was just on a, um, having a conversation. Um, I was on a conversation with like this with Sharon Salzberg and, and I was like excited. She's a Buddhist teacher. And I was excited mm-hmm. because I was like, um, yeah, she'd been on the show. Oh yeah. Cool. And I was like, I, you know, <laughs> you say, <laughs> I was sort of like, what do you think? You know, uh, sort of about your very question. And she was like, right. One of the things that, um, like it's sort of, it's a crucial not to refuse our, our sorrow. And there's this other thing of like, well, we can, we can, can, can kind of like disappear in it, be mm. completely overwhelmed by it. And we were sort of talking about that. And, and I was sort of wondering if it's the case that if we understand that we are not alone in sorrow, if that might be some, some way that we do not, that we might be completely devastated and forever devastated, but we might not sort of become isolated in our sorrow or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just sort of wondering that. And I, I do think that's a, a big question because I think you're right. We're often sort of, you know, we're told to get over it, move on. Mm-hmm. And it just, that to me is just like, not only is it brutal, it's just like, well, it's just not true. You know, you don't, you know, we, we change our relationship to things with this and that, but I don't think you really get over it. Mm-hmm. who you love you know no and I, I'm really I'm taken by the idea of being kind of swallowed up by an emotion that we almost can't even name sometimes yeah right it's just like you're just suddenly being slammed by something like a wave and you're not even sure what the word is to really get to it yeah and it seems to me that if one can find the language and then understand that that language is spoken by others around you that are yeah. in that place too I mean that to me has such just a profound healing function to it. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think in so many of our experiences that are like overwhelming experiences. I haven't thought of it until you were just saying that. That that they often part of the overwhelm is that I think is that we think of them as this is only mine. Mm. You know. I think of like other kinds of emotional crisis. You know, like. Um, I don't know if this is like sound pedagogy, <laughs> but every once in a while I'll be in my class, I'll be like, how many of you have had like panic attacks or yeah, whatever, yeah. something that when you have a thing like that, a certain kind of crisis, you can feel like I am the only person in the world experiencing this. And if I tell anyone, I'm going to be sent away. Right. They think I'm crazy. They think yeah. I'm crazy. Uh-huh. And then like, you know, half of the class raises their <laughs> And everyone kind of like rests a little bit like, oh, okay, okay. Like, how do you deal with that? You know, and whatever. Um, But I think grief is very much a similar way. I feel like one of the reasons we probably refuse grief is because um, it feels, it can feel like isolating. But I think, I wonder too sometimes if we refuse grief because it reminds us in fact that we are connected to each other fundamentally. Mm. You know, like you don't grieve if you're not connected. Right. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, right, grief is this kind of beautiful but shadow side of love, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. And and I would even say that um, maybe it's not a shadow side. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like it's as much the light as is the love, you know, yeah. like they, they're they are not they're not. They're not sides of each other. They are each other. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, too, when you watched your father in his, in his final days, I mean, was there anything about the process of dying that surprised you? I mean, maybe sometimes we, those that haven't been through it might think of it almost as, as kind of a seamless process. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, my experience, losing my mother and a number mm-hmm. of people in my lives, is that death kind of arrives at its own time not mm-hmm. in a very romantic moment generally speaking and it's it's pretty it's pretty wild in many totally. sense yeah it's really wild it's sort of uh yeah there are, you know there are all kinds of it yeah it definitely was sort of you know it was kind of a brutal hospital style death you yeah. know where he was intubated for a while you know when i say a while like longer than like a, a day and um and you know, you kind of get to encounter or, or consider those things too. Like, hmm, mm-hmm. how, how do I want to leave? Um, but 
but it was very much where this sort of you 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 know my my uncle my dad's brother his his baby brother was is a physician is an oncologist and was sort of around you know was sort of involved to some extent mm-hmm. with like um and he was the one who you know took the tube out of my father's mouth mm. um it's just all those things where you sort of um it, my dad's mom was there you know yeah. um all these things where i was sort of thinking man we all have we're all you know we're all having a profound experience right now mm-hmm. you know as tied up as i was in my own head i was like damn I'm my father's son, but I'm not his brother. As, as, as much as I feel like I know my dad, that dude lived his whole life with my dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's a section from the essay that I'd, I'd love for you to read. Can you, can you tell us kind of what this is and, and, and give it to us? Yeah. This is, um, I mentioned that fantasy where I sort of thought, um, you know, me and my brother were sort of witnessing how, how kind of weak um, my dad was getting, and we were like, we gotta, we gotta kind of get him to bounce back. You know, and we gotta, mm. yeah. <laughs> we, gotta yeah, yeah. we gotta get him on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there would be no treadmill, but we were hoping, we were hoping for the treadmill. And basically, I sort of uh, tell the story about I was on my way to work, and then it was like, we gotta get to it now, and mm. I head down to the hospital where my dad was and where he died, a hospital called Mercy in West Philadelphia. And, you know, I got into the room and and the last thing basically that he said was like, my kidneys are failing Mm -hmm. and they were taking him out. And I just kept asking, was he, can I get in to see him Um, when they were setting him up? And when they finally said I could go see him and walk me into my father's room, it was nearly silent. No Judge Judy, no ESPN, no TV at all. Just the quiet whir of the dialysis machine against the wall, plugged into my father, who was on his back and looked to be sleeping. His mouth and eyes were softly closed. He was breathing quietly. The blanket was pulled over his chest, and his hands were at his side. I think the animal knew that it was official now. I had had my last conversation with my father. This part was over now. And I remember feeling frantic, trapped, as I kept asking him if he could hear me. My hand was on his chest. I was shaking him just a little, asking if he could hear me. Dad, can you hear me? And he stayed sleeping, quietly. Can you hear me, Dad? Can you hear me? And by now I was crying hard and I was kissing my father's face again and again, telling him I loved him again and again. It was the softest face in the world, my father's face. Hmm. So quiet like that. I never knew it. I had never touched it before. I was crying onto his eyelids and cheeks and kissing him and telling him again and again, I loved him. I love you, Dad. His brown face was lit with my tears. And with my forehead pressed into his and my hands on his cheeks, I noticed that my father had freckles sprinkled across the bridge of his nose and his upper cheeks. It was like a gentle broadcast of carrot seeds blending into his skin, flickering visible from this distance. It was through my tears I saw my father was a garden, or the two of us, or the all of us. Not here long, maybe, it is. And from that, what might grow? Hmm. Uh, That was beautiful. Um, And and Ross, I just, I, I, I wonder how it was for you just to read that again. Like what was coming up for you? I mean, that, that is really powerful. I do, I sort of like think of like one of the, as I was reading that, I sort of thinking, oh, one of the sorrows of this, um, I think of, of just experience, you know, like we, we live, we lose, you know, our, our beloveds die. Um, and I do think it's a sort of probably common experience to be like, oh, I never, I never even noticed this thing yeah. about you. I'd never touched your face like this, or I never noticed you had freckles, or I never noticed that's what you did every time after you laughed, or I never noticed, you know. Um, and that, I think it is like one of those things, like it, it both feels heartbreaking, and part of the heartbreak is like, maybe the instruction of the heartbreak is to be like, 
And today you have the opportunity to sort of notice what people do when they laugh and to mm. notice how people tie their shoes and to notice how people smile and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I think, you know, my experience is, is, is maybe similar as I think a lot of ours is at that moment, which is just that when the person has really fully died, I mean, there is this like deep atavistic kind of primal thing that comes out. You know, mm-hmm. this like animal scream almost. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's where you found yourself as well. That there was just, there was something mm-hmm. just potent that was coming out at that point for you. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. And it was sort of the understanding about, uh, an understanding above understanding, you know, and it was sort of like, I wasn't thinking about it, but I think mm-hmm. I was, because that wasn't the thing. The thing was like, oh yeah, he's, he's just getting his dialysis now. But I think that understanding over understanding was sort of like, yeah, I think I think this thing is is wrapping up, mm-hmm. you know, and that did. You're absolutely right. It felt, it felt, it felt, it felt very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I, I I wonder, and I know this is maybe too big of a question, but like, how now do you think or define grief after having been through this? What kind of words do you put? to that word, which I think is, can be so big at times. I do wonder, and I feel like I must have lifted this um, from someone, you know, I feel like most of how I, how I think about this is, um, is informed by other, other thinkers. And I feel Mm -hmm. like there's something like, maybe, maybe something like grief is the way that we metabolize change, Mm. you know, and it's sort of, Sometimes that maybe happens over a little bit of time and sometimes maybe it happens or maybe you don't stop metabolizing change and maybe it's not all change either. Like I'm not real precise on that, but I do feel like there is, you know, there is this profound thing like and, and, it, and it wasn't actually, you know, partly I think what what sort of there's a way that the sort of refused grief that I write about in this book, which was a kind of you know, bent me toward like being like really kind of disturbed. And it felt like part of what I was sort of refusing to witness maybe or, or to fall into because it felt so terrifying is that, you know, when who you love dies, who you understand your life, yourself to be dies, like every single thing changes, you know? And I sort of, I feel like I learned that by witnessing other people experiencing that loss and being able to be like, oh, I see. Like you now, like riding your bike is no longer the same. Mm. You know, like going to the record store is no longer the same. You know, preparing your tea in the morning is, it's, it's a different thing now. Um, and being able to sort of, as I was sort of getting in touch to some extent with that, you know, to the best of my ability, which is ongoing with that feeling, to be with my mother, to be like, oh, every single thing in your life has become like really like you know pretty they were very <laughs> they were very tied up my mom oh, and my yeah. dad like yeah. every single thing like every meal you cook for the rest of your life is going to be a different thing you know not like it's going to be a a less thing or a more thing or a you know a bad thing or a good thing but it's going to be a different thing And it's, it's interesting, right? I think maybe, maybe you're similar to me, which is there's some days you think, oh, I can, I can kind of just exist alone in this world. I'm fine. I can do the things that I care about and my passions. And, but what you're saying is like almost mysterious and metaphysical, which is that like these interpersonal relationships have a massive impact on who we are and how we exist in the world, right? I mean, you maybe might not have spoken to your father for a week or months on end, but like that death shifted your reality of what it is to be a human that wakes up and exists every day. Completely. That, and I find that to be like really, really important and kind of profound. Yeah, profound. It's, it's profound because I think we can't exist alone or isolated. Even when we imagine ourselves alone, we're mm-hmm. with, you know, whether we're with, um, you know, like the sun or the trees or like the ground beneath our feet. But we're also like in the case of like, if, if I felt like I was annoyed with my father, I was in relationship with my father, 
you know, if I felt like I was sort of like trying to like <laughs> get him out of my, if I was trying, if I was trying to like, you know, whatever, I was not talking to my dad for something or whatever. I was in relationship with my father, you know, and it's sort of like that. To me, the thing that you're exactly right, I feel like one of the lessons of my life, an ongoing lesson is that there's a part of me that wants to be alone. Yeah. And it imagines that being alone is safe. You know, be, be, and by being alone, meaning being out of relationship. And more sad is being out of obligation or being out of like beholdenness. You know, like I don't, I don't, you know, to be outside of relationship, you know, to be alone means you don't have to mourn. You know, it also means you don't have to like, um, whatever, contend with oneself a little bit. You don't have to listen. You don't have to do. And, but at the same time, that fantasy of being alone or that fantasy of, you know, being self-sustaining is precisely a fantasy. And it's a kind of brutal fantasy as far as I'm concerned too, because the things that we'll do to sort of imagine that that's possible, we'll just sort of like, how do you put it, outsource our needs, Yeah, you know? So I feel like all I feel like grief is this kind of place where we get to sort of be like, oh right, I love stuff, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have the capacity to love, which means I have the capacity to be devastated. I have the capacity to like not be able to get out of my bed for weeks because I don't know what this thing is um, now that this person I love just whatever or whatever, you know that that I have the capacity to be moved, actually. Mm -hmm. Moved is a good word. Yeah, I love that. Well, I, as we begin to kind of wrap up, I, there was an image in the piece that you presented in which you, you talked about your father's face as if there were carrot seeds over yeah. And, I, and I, I, I love that because not only is it a really striking image, but I, I have to ask you about your connection to the fact that you, you love planting gardens you love seeing things grow you love being outside and touching seeds with your hands and i just and i'm wondering about your connection between you know the death of your father but also uh of rebirth and of kind mm. of like the fundamental role of rule of the world which are that things continue to come back in ways that are mysterious and wonderful and beautiful too so i just as an open question where do you kind of see these connections of of death, but also of, of life and plants and seeds and things coming back. There's so many, and I feel like it's such a lucky thing to kind of get to hang out in a garden because it does sort of encourage you to have a different relationship to things like blooming and to things like going, you know, making seeds and to things like dying um, or going dormant or maybe primarily things turning into other things which is always what's happening in a garden. You know, it's a kind of this, it's, and by things turning into other things, it's also like this site where you get to see that, oh, isn't that amazing? Like where the peas grew last year, the, the collards are growing really good right there. It seems like maybe they've left something behind that is making those, those uh, collards thrive, you know, and you can get into that a little bit of what that means, what that is. But it is an opportunity not only to sort of witness how things are changing into each other, but how things are indispensable to one another, how things are, you know, require um, each other. Mm. You know, a garden, I say this again and again in the book, like a healthy garden, you know, a garden that is, you know, that we are not at war at, but we are sort of listening to and witnessing, um, is a place where you get to see stuff working working together in all of these sort of miraculous ways and also making each other possible in all these miraculous ways. Mm. Well, it's been such a great pleasure and honor to have Ross Gay back on the program, the author most recently of Inciting Joy. He's a poet, essayist, and professor of English at Indiana University. Ross, thank you, uh, as always, for spending some time with us. Same here. It's so fun to talk with you. And now we'd love to hear from you. Is there a book, a poem, or an essay that helped you through a period of grief? We'd love for you to share that on our Facebook group. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. 
I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bast, and back with Life Examines on KCRW. So as we continue to reflect this week on our own experiences of grief, how do written words connect us to our deepest emotions and serve as a bridge to healing and recovery? Let's rejoin the conversation and hear from another poet and essayist, Chloe Honam. Born in Auckland, New Zealand, Chloe Honam came to California as a teenager. She's currently assistant professor of creative writing at Baylor University, and her collections of poems include The Tulip Flame and The Lantern Room. Chloe Honam, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. I want to start just hearing about your mother. I mean, I I know that you lost her when you were just 17, and I can imagine just what a huge impact that would have on anybody, but of course you and also being a writer. Tell us a little bit about her and 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 this and this very devastating news that I know that you would hear um can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I can. So she died when I was seventeen and she died from suicide and she was in New Zealand, where I grew up, where I was raised, and where she was born and raised and so she was in New Zealand, and I had moved to live with my paternal grandmother in Los Angeles. I had moved about about two years before. And then you know, my mother my mother died. And um, so it was immensely devastating, shocking. And I was in, you know, in in Los Angeles. She was in, in Auckland, New Zealand, and um, I hadn't been back since I'd moved to to Los Angeles, and uh, so it just really altered, you know, the course of my of my life from from then on. I uh, have you know, remained in in the states uh, mostly, um, you know, travel back to visit, but live here. Mm. Yeah. And what did it mean to you? knowing that your mother died of suicide versus, you know, an, an illness, although I think suicide is probably an illness in its own way. I mean, but, you know, that that's such still a, a taboo subject. And I know for people who have lost family members through suicide, it's, there can be a lot of, a lot of shame or um, unknown or aspects of it. What, what did that, what did that all mean to you? Um, it was i mean that taboo of it and shame of it was certainly certainly very present it was um difficult to find language around and being 17 um you know it was it was difficult to sort of know how to talk about it with friends and things there was my family and then there was also my my world of high school and things as well and it was it was difficult to to talk about. I was very fortunate in that my paternal grandmother, with whom I lived, she was a therapist, and she was you know enormously helpful and steadying in realizing those taboos and helping to push through them and realizing that shame and helping to to try to lift it. Um, yeah, but it was, you know, I wouldn't know how to talk about it. I went off to college and I had, you know, new friends and new, you know, dorm mates and roommates and things. I went went off to New York for college to sort of new, you know, meeting all new people and things. And I remember at the beginning, I would quite spontaneously, if I was asked about my mother, I would, I would lie. I would say, she lives in New Zealand or, or, and then if she died, I wouldn't say how I would, I would lie. And it was kind of spontaneous at the time. I think it wasn't as though I decided to, 
to do that or plan to, to do that. It would just be in the moment. I it's such it, it could be difficult just to find the language to tell the truth. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I think I think in a sense very few deaths are actually arrive at a time that everybody is ready for. I think that most deaths happen very unexpectedly. Even if someone is ill, it can happen really quickly. But in this case, I mean, I, I'd imagine the suddenness of it almost, you know, must have felt like she had just disappeared. Not mm -hmm. even to mention the fact that you were on different continents within different seasons too. Mm -hmm. And, and I, so, so I wonder, you know, if there were things that, you had wished you could have said to her or if there could have been things you wish you could have known because I, I felt feel like this was probably all maybe enshrouded in some kind of mysterious quality. Yes. In my particular experience, she'd had suicide attempts in the past mm. uh, leading up to, and that was one of the, uh, one of the big reasons I had moved to live with my grandmother in, in Los Angeles was because she had, my mother had had a suicide attempt and we, you know, our family in Auckland were trying to deal with that, you know, in the, in the aftermath of that, she'd had a very serious suicide attempt and then had come home. And um, at that point, it was sort of decided I would go live with my grandmother for a while. And it was at first sort of to be temporary, just to go for a semester and be away for a while. But it had become very difficult in our house. So, and then we had the distance and sort of you know, hearing that she was doing better, but always sort of worried about it. And then when she did die, I mean, there was so much I wished I, I'd been able to talk with her about. And that sort of continues as I grow older and I gather new ways of seeing things or that I wish I could talk with her about. So that I think was immediate and also sort of ongoing. Sometimes there'll just be things that happen in the world or I'll read a book or something. And I, I really do um, wish for that chance to speak as adults because mm. I think there were things I knew and things that I didn't know as well and things that she you know, likely didn't want to talk with me about or confide in me because I was a child, 15 when I left, and things that I wish that we'd been able to talk about now or, you know, be able to, you know, talk as adults, which yeah. is something that I do wish, yeah. Well, I know that this would have a big impact on your writing. And in your first book, there's, um, there's a poem in there called Come Back. And I'd love it if you could, you read that for us, and maybe we can, we can talk about it after. Absolutely. I'd be happy to read it. So this poem, um, it's a villanelle, which means it has repeated lines, refrains repeated um, throughout the poem. And it's um, about looking at horses, which I, I love horses. I find them so majestic. Um, but within the context of the book, it's also about grief and the kind of disorientation and you know, vertigo feeling that can come with uh, with grief, and I wrote this a while ago now, when I look back on it, I can see the effort to hold an image clearly or see something clearly. So in the, in the context of the book, it's also, you know, about that kind of way of seeing or, or, or um, effort to, to see clearly. Come back. I can't see all of any horse at once. They weave through twilight, in and out of sight, as the sky drains of color, enters dusk. The barn's a bloodstain on an ivory dress, lost in the skirt, a spiraling red kite. I can't see all of any horse at once. Between us, there is only field and dust, a fence and a shadow fence. Beside me, lightning splashes the hillside, loosens it so dusk can wring each soggy evergreen, unlace pink threads of berries from the shrubs. I wait. I can't see all of any horse at once. The moon has flown and in its place a husk clings to the sky. The horses figure eight in single file. 
through rain-sown drapes of dusk, I try to count them, climb up on the fence. Their foreheads shine with pearly stars, ghost-lit. I can't see all of any horse at once. They multiply and shiver in the dusk. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And, you know, when you read it, there was something that felt almost very dreamlike in the quality of it and in the way that that the refrain, I can't see all of any horse but once. Can, can you talk about maybe that refrain there and, and a little bit of what you were driving at at the poem? Oh, yeah. Well, that line came first, I can't see all of any horse at once. And with a villanelle form, um, because those lines come back, it's good to have a line that you can kind of deepen or circle and return to. And I think in the context of the book, you know, trying to see clearly, to, to see the, the whole picture of something or to hold an image steady uh, was, was important to me in writing the poem. So I think in having something like that to try to, the effort to see, and so that became centered on, on the idea of trying to, to see a, a, a horse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I, I lost my mother when I was 30, so I was still quite a bit older than you. But I remember when that had happened, someone had come up to me afterwards and gave me a hug and said, well, you know, he was about my age. And he said, welcome to the club. You're, mm -hmm. now, now you're in here with us, in a sense. And, and I remember thinking, this is not a club I asked to be a part of. Mm -hmm. But but here I am, right? The story had suddenly taken me to this moment, to this this place, to this connection. And I, I guess I wonder for you as this young person who, who had envisioned their life moving in one direction, and suddenly, you know, you're you've come across this thing that you've had never asked for, and that was going to shape so much of you. You know how how you sat with that, how that felt for you to suddenly have to be in the presence of that. I think I. I... I relate to that, you know, what you've said about someone saying, you know, welcome to the, the, the club and how now I can see grief as something that connects us, you know, that we're here together and we we're, we can be there for one another and it doesn't have to be so isolating. Uh, but it's, but at 17, I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't quite see it that way at that time. But with suicide, particularly where there's this, you know, shame as you as you mentioned around it, to me it felt like a a, a, a heavy thing to to try to navigate, and that was where things like poetry became really uh, steadying to me to to sort of see. And it didn't have to be poems that that reference suicide particularly. It could be could be a lot of other taboos as well, but to see poets being able to speak of of those experiences was something that was that was really steadying and illuminating to me mm. well speaking of the writing I'd, I'd love to jump to a poem called offerings and can you set this one up for us talk about you know where this poem came from at what time in your life and then i'd love to jump into it yes yeah, so this poem um i wrote when I was approaching the 17th anniversary of my mother's death, 17 years of my life with her and then 17 years without and then going forward from there as the years would continue, it would always be more now life without her than with. And I was just, just this kind of feeling of a flood of longing uh, with this poem. And, and that context that I just mentioned is not in the poem itself. Um, but the, the longing behind it is, is connected to that anniversary. Offerings. I have saved my pantomime of the sky for you. Let me lie with my head in your lap. I will sing the song of the trees in the cold wind, the way they rush up like flames, their leaves rippling. I want to show you everything you might have missed. With my fingers, I will emulate moonlight resting on a field of violets. 
I am about as convincing as the child playing the sun in the school recital. But I have rain in my hair. This much is true. Let me bring it to you. Hmm. Rain is, is mentioned in this poem and in other ones, of course, you've written. And, you know, I, I, I wonder how much of a theme that is for you. And there's also that, I think, a very mysterious ending line there, which is, I have rain in my hair. And then you say, this much is true. Let me bring it to you. Can you tell me about that? Those last few sentences? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's you know so interesting to after you write a book or you kind of look back at your work from more of a distance and when you're writing it and, and rain is all through my work. I have rain comes up in many, many poems. It's always somehow coming into the poems. It's not intentional that I do that. It just happens. And, you know, I grew up in Auckland, which is a very rainy place. And so that seems where that comes from, you know, to have just to have so much rain in my memories. So in those those lost words there, I have rain in my hair. This much is true. Let me bring it to you. You know, bring something of, you know, earthly, something that the, you know, the, the rain that wherever she is, I could bring that, anything she might have missed. It sort of holds for me a whole lot of mystery because, you know, of course, with after someone's death, you feel, where are they? How do I reach them? What could I bring them? So, and the rain being such a, a sensory, earthly thing, I think that's that's how that sort of came into those that lost line. Mm. Well, it's been really wonderful to spend some time with Chloe Honam, poet and essayist. Her collections include The Tulip Flame and The Lantern Room. Thank you so much for, for sharing some of your work and your memories with us. I, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. You can connect with us on Facebook or you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back next week. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon.